I really am excited about this morning. It's been a busy week, and so I've been a little scatterbrained. Um, but I love, I love both starting with times of prayer and, and worship and being able to kind of recenter uh, my heart and then being able to respond after, after hearing the word. And so uh, hopefully that was also a good, a good moment for you to be able to set aside the clutter of the week and, uh, and the distraction even of the rain and, and be able to be ready for this morning. Uh, I, will, I will warn you, um, though, before we get going, um, this sermon is not going to change your life. Uh, it might not even change your Sunday. Not, not, not because I plan on phoning this one in or because I think I wrote a dud or, uh, or anything like that, but because the reality that sermons don't change your life. That's just, that's the reality. So I want us to start with appropriate expectations, right? That hopefully you didn't show up this morning thinking this sermon is going to radically transform my life because it's not how, that's not how life works, right? Information does not transform hearts. Love does. That's why we sing songs about God's transformative love that he put on display at the cross, because that is what changes us. Just getting more information does not change us. Now, I'm not saying that you have never been impacted by a sermon before or a book or something like that, but it wasn't the sermon or the book that transformed you. It was the Spirit of God using that as a particular vehicle at that time. Which is why you can hear the same thing over and over and over again. You can sit down and hear me or Jay preach the same thing week after week after week after week. And after 50 times, you leave and you go have lunch and it doesn't do anything. But the 51st time, all of a sudden, it seems like relevatory and, and, and mind-boggling. It's because that's the time that the Holy Spirit stirred in you and so overwhelmed you with his gracious love, just delivered by the Spirit of God and demonstrated and made possible by Jesus' work on the cross, filling us with that desire to follow Jesus with everything that we have and everything that we are. And that is what changes you. That, the love of Christ controls us, it says in 2 Corinthians, and compels us to no longer live for ourselves but for Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us, Paul says in Galatians. In Ephesians, he talks about the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. It is immeasurably better than just knowledge. So it's not just more knowledge, more information that's going to change us. And my hope this morning, and, and frankly every time I preach, is to simply point you to that love, to point you to that Jesus, and pray that the Holy Spirit is going to affirm in my heart and in yours the truth of who Jesus is and to help you to follow him, like literally, practically, day in and day out. So let's get after it. In Colossians chapter 2 this morning. It says, I'm going to read the whole passage and then we'll come back through it step by step and unpack it a bit. Paul says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." 
I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. God, I ask that you would open our spiritual eyes to discern what we cannot grasp apart from you. Spirit, please help us to believe your word and to trust you and to trust in what can be accomplished in obeying our Jesus, in following him practically day in and day out. Do the work that only you can do. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul starts, he says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those in Laodicea. And I think what we struggle with says a lot about who we are and what truly matters to us, right? The things that we wrestle with, the things that cause us difficulty, the things that we strive for communicates a lot about what is the actual center of our life. And what does it say that Paul struggles with? That their hearts may be encouraged and being knit together in love. His desire, his struggle, what he is working for, agonizing towards, is that the followers of Jesus would be encouraged and knit together in love. He's not struggling over the state of the Roman Empire. He is not struggling over his rights or to protect his stuff or to get more stuff. He isn't even struggling over the fact that as he is writing this, he is currently in prison for preaching the gospel. Not struggling with that. He is struggling and working towards the church being encouraged and being unified by love. That communicates, I think, quite a bit about his priorities, doesn't it? And what is the end that he is hoping for in that? That he would be knit together in love. Why? So that we could reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. That's a big deal. Right? That unifying love leads to knowledge, not the other way around. See, we always think that the problem is a lack of information. Right? If you just had more information, if I just can tell you what you're wrong about, and then you correct those ideas, learn new facts, that will change you. That will make you start to love. But that's not how it works. Love comes first. Scripture is clear, page after page after page, that love is the first cause. It is the first cause both in creation and at the cross and in each aspect of our lives day in and day out. Love for God and love for one another. A love that knits us together no matter what and leads us ultimately to understanding wisdom, and knowledge that God has actually made available to us. Because ultimately, that love leads us to Jesus. But more on that in a minute. 
The weird thing is that no amount of study, no amount of gathering information can produce this love in us. Even no amount of Bible study will ever compare ultimately to the transformative power of love. Not that it is less than studying scripture, but it must be more than because you can study scripture Christlessly. People study scripture all the time. There are men and women who study it as a piece of literature who don't find it in any way authoritative, but who know more about it most likely than any of us in this field ever will. But it hasn't transformed them at all. Many of us, just on a personal level, have been in years of Bible studies, right? Year after year after year of Bible study, but still feel riddled with the same desires and fears and anxiety and sometimes self-righteousness or an, an unwillingness or inability to give or to forgive. Why is that? Because we are hoping that more knowledge will produce love, rather than believing the very Bible that we are studying that says that that's backwards. Love in the context of community is what yields to the kind of understanding and wisdom and knowledge that Paul is struggling for right here. Being knit together in love in order to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge. That's why Paul warns us that you can have all prophetic powers, you can understand all mysteries and have all knowledge and have all faith so as to move mountains, but if you have not love, I am nothing. You can have all the knowledge in the world, but if it's devoid of love, it's worthless because that won't produce love. The love must come first and lead to the right kind of knowledge, the knowledge that Jesus wants for us. And what is the source and subject of that understanding and knowledge with Jesus? Love incarnate is both the source and the end of that knowledge. It says this is all the mysteries are found in Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. How many of the treasures? Some of the treasures? A few of the treasures? Just spiritual treasures? Nope. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It is all found in Christ. How? Be patient. We're getting there. First, what is wisdom and what are we even talking about here? I think the most simple and, in my opinion, most helpful definition of wisdom is making proper use of the right information. Wisdom is revealed in action. It's being able to actually use and act on the knowledge and information that you have. So when Paul references a group of people in Romans who, proclaiming themselves wise, they became fools. That's for at least two reasons. Number one, because you can't declare yourself wise. Wisdom is revealed in your actions. Telling people that you're wise is the equivalent of bragging about how humble you are. The minute you say it, you aren't anymore. And second, because their wisdom was based on their own reason and their own plausible arguments. And Paul says, that stuff just turns to ash in your hands. That's nothing. That kind of reason, reason is constantly changing. Things that we thought were completely reasonable 200 years ago, we now find absurd. 
Because reason is not absolute. It's, it's a mist. You can't hang on to it. So what is the source? What is the well? What is the fountain of real objective knowledge and true wisdom? Well, Paul says Jesus. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's all found in Jesus. And he says this. He says, I want you to know this so that no one will delude you with plausible arguments. Most of us don't need to fear implausible arguments, right? I hope. And no one's going to deceive you with something that sounds completely ridiculous to you. Right? We, now, granted, some of us are occasionally bamboozled by some pretty outlandish stuff. Right? We can convince ourselves of some pretty illogical nonsense when we want to, especially if we are afraid of the alternative or if we refuse to admit that we are wrong. We'll believe some pretty crazy stuff. But that's not what Paul's cautioning us toward here. What he's cautioning us toward is the stuff that, that, the stuff that he is warning us to evaluate, the stuff that he is encouraging us to challenge is the stuff that makes the most sense to you. The stuff that to you feels so self-evident, you don't even really give it a second thought. You just assume it to be true. Paul's warning, you need to be unified in a community of love and so dependent entirely on Christ that you will have hedge of protection around yourself so that you won't become deceived by things that sound really good but ultimately are delusion. They're actually against Christ even though you might think he would totally approve of it. And even if it seems like everyone around you agrees, Paul circles back around that in a minute as well. I would caution that the more convinced we are of our own rightness, the more concerned we should be. If you hear that and you think, this doesn't apply to me, I'm not affected by deception. Whoa, buddy. You are the one I am most concerned about. If you are not acutely aware of how easily deceived your heart is, of how easily convinced you can be of things that are not of Christ and are entirely of you, if you are not concerned about where our limited sources of information are leading our hearts and our minds, then that means you are not on guard and you are utterly unaware of all the ways that you are deceived or at least inconsistent. The reality is that if I believe that Jesus would pretty much agree with all of my views, vote exactly how I would, and, be, and is upset about all of the things that I am upset about, that is likely not because I have become so conformed into the image of Jesus, but because I have so conformed my image of Jesus to me. Church, we must be on guard. That we are not worshiping an image of ourself and retrofitting it to look like Jesus and saying, I'm following Jesus. And luckily, he agrees with everything that I think. Paul, again, is not warning us about being deceived by things that you think are completely absurd. He's saying, be careful of the things that make the most sense to you. The things that appeal to your nature 
and your preferences and your desires because that is where you will find yourself accidentally believing things that are lies of the enemy. The enemy is a good liar, church. He doesn't show up in a red suit with a pitchfork because you'd go, I'm not listening to that clown. He is good at deception. And he even uses scripture in order to deceive us, just like he did with Jesus himself. And he always starts by affirming you and affirming me and what I think is right and what I think I deserve and how smart and reasonable I am. And then he uses that to blind and ultimately render us fruitless. The enemy of our souls is masterful at using what Paul refers to here as philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the principles of this world and not according to Christ, and then convincing us it's biblical. He is masterful at this. Because he doesn't need to turn you into an atheist. He just needs to get you to follow a false Christianity. How much more, how much more awesome for him is that? That I'm convinced that I'm following Jesus when I can't even see Jesus from where I am because I'm moving a different direction. His arguments are very reasonable. It's why we fall for them. So what does Paul mean when he says, according to Christ? Not according to the principles of the world, but according to Christ. I would say it's easier than we would think. What did Jesus actually say? And how did Jesus actually live? What did he say? And what did he model? In verse 6, it says we can't just receive Christ and then go on with our lives. It says, as you've received Christ, so walk in him. We must also walk in him. We must be both rooted, he says, and built up in him. We like to think that he's the foundation, right? And then we use our own reason and our own desires to build whatever house on that we like. And then we decorate it however we prefer, right? I've heard the parable. The wise man built his house upon the rock. Am I right? You with me? It's my house. Man, if that's what you thought that was going on there, you've completely misunderstood that parable. A couple small problems with that. Number one, how often do you think about your foundation? I'm guessing not a ton. But that's not something that crosses our mind. And I'm going to go so far as to say never. Unless it breaks. But this is a foundation that never breaks, which means if it's just the foundation, I'll never think about it. All of my focus, all of my attention is on all of the stuff that I have piled on top of that foundation, right? And I promise you, Jesus is not giving us a helpful parable about how you should bury him under a whole pile of all of the stuff that you actually care about. That's not what the parable is about. What he's doing is using this parable at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Context matters. Where he says things matters. And this is how he ends the Sermon on the Mount. The most stunning description of how the world actually works and how we are supposed to actually live and act within it. 
and then ends with this parable saying, don't think that you can just follow all of these rules on your own. If you think that you can do that, as soon as the wave starts pounding, you are getting washed away. This must be built on me. Jesus must be the foundation, yes, but he also must be the framing and the walls and the paint and all the decoration, or I cannot say that I am living in Jesus. But Robbie, how can that be true? How can that possibly be? How can he be everything? How can I trust that he is that sufficient? How can he truly be the only one who has ever actually mastered life? How can all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge possibly reside in him? Verse 9, because in him, the whole fullness of deity dwelt bodily. Try to wrap your brain around that. He is love incarnate. He is wisdom incarnate. He is knowledge incarnate because he is God incarnate. So what we are contrasting here when we say, well, what about, you know, my reason and intellect versus Jesus teaching? I mean, I feel like it should be a bit of a give and take there, right? Maybe a couple, couple of pieces of his thoughts, some of my thoughts, adding to it, rounding it out into something really awesome. That sounds good to me. What I'm contrasting is my guess, however educated it may be, you can tack on however many initials at the end of my name that you want, and it is still ultimately a guess, Because the one thing that I'll never have at the end of my name is omniscience. So I'm always lacking something pretty significant in there. Versus God's absolute omniscient knowledge of everything because he made it all. Our limited view versus God's absolute omniscience. How often we as a church and as individuals and as families look to the world for wisdom and seemingly rational arguments made by people rather than listening to what Jesus himself said to our shame and to the detriment of the church. We trust in hilariously inferior sources because we just can't believe that Jesus' way is right. He can't, he just can't be right. That doesn't work in the real world, Jesus. Loving your enemies can't possibly be the way to defeat evil. That doesn't work, Jesus. Forgiving people who betrayed me can't possibly heal my heart. That's not how that works. It's only when they get what they deserve that I will feel better about that, even though that's never happened for anyone ever. It's never made anybody feel better. And there's... We are ignoring countless examples of where what Jesus has actually said has proven true. Why? Because he created, he spoke into existence every atom in the universe. He knows how it works. I don't. You don't. When he says, I'm explaining to you not one option to consider, but how the universe I created actually works and how you can flourish within it. That's what I am arguing against. And when I go, ah, Jesus, I, I don't know. Loving your enemies, again, that's, that's never going to defeat evil. 
There needs to be a more practical way for giving people. Let's let's consult some other sources so we can make up for Jesus deficiencies in logic. Now, while we would never say that out loud, that is exactly functionally what we are doing. In spite of seeing every example in Scripture and seeing countless examples outside of it of Jesus actually knows what he's talking about. But we go, nah, no, I think I, I think I can do better than what Jesus had to say. I know what will be more effective. I can't help but think of poor Peter thinking, well, I know Jesus, you know, I've been following him around. I know what I know what he's been saying, but I've got a better idea here. And when he feels that he and his people are threatened, he protects his crew, right? And so he draws down and he takes the guy out and he eliminates the threat and stands up probably feeling pretty good about himself saying, just protected my Jesus, protected my people. Can you imagine the horror and utter humiliation he had to feel when Jesus' response to that is, are you kidding me, Peter? Have you listened to a thing that I have said? Have you watched a single thing that I have done over the last three years? And he walks over to the threat that Peter neutralized and he heals the damage that Peter had done and helps him to his feet. Peter, have you learned nothing? Conquer evil with love not with more evil. We think, man, I, I don't know. It just doesn't seem practical. I don't know if Jesus really knows what he's talking about. I don't know what I'm talking about. I know a lot of stuff. I don't know what Jesus knows. I didn't speak this into existence Imagine, if you will, the President, Secretary of Defense, Joint Chiefs of Staff are all gathered together responding to a direct threat from another country against the USA. And they're all hunched over the conference table, right? And there's gallons of coffee later. They're sweating bullets. They're all freaking out. They're tired and they're trying to figure out the best path forward and how to avoid large-scale war. In the midst of all this intensity, the Secretary of the Marines says, hang on, everybody. I'd, uh, I'd like to bring in my two-year-old son to come and share his thoughts. I think we are currently lacking the toddler perspective on this situation. What? Why does that sound absurd? Why... why would it be appropriate for everyone else in that conference room to assume the Secretary of the Marines had just suffered a nervous breakdown? Because, because the thoughts of someone incapable of understanding the situation is not entirely helpful and should not be valued to the same degree as those with the intellect and the emotional intelligence of something that, that something of that magnitude would require. Does that mean that a two-year-old's thoughts are not valuable? Surely not. In the proper context. I love it when my five-year-old son tells me what he's thinking about and what he's excited about, what he's concerned about. I love that. Those thoughts are all very real and very valuable to me. I treasure those things. 
but I won't be consulting him on his thoughts on the best methodology for ecclesiological organization. He doesn't have much to contribute on that subject. If you don't see where I'm going with this little parable, I'll clarify. You and I are the toddler in this scenario. Humanity as a whole is the toddler. And Isaiah, God makes it very clear. Your thoughts, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So God's helpful reminder to us is not, I mean, you're pretty smart. You've got some good ideas. I'm just, I'm a little bit smarter. No, he says that your thoughts and my thoughts are the difference between here and eternity. That's, that's the difference. And again, not that we do not have value and not that he does not value our thoughts, our feelings. Again, my, my little son is precious to me, as is my not-so-little-anymore daughter. I would take a bullet or a bus for either one of them. Our God took a cross for us. So the issue is not that he doesn't value us as image bearers of the creative Father. We have glorious and valuable things that we can contribute to the world. But we begin to look so foolish when we overextend ourselves beyond what we are capable of. And when the one who actually created life, the universe, and everything explains exactly how it truly works and how we flourish in the system that he created, and we say, yeah, but you know what sounds better? My way. And I'm going to go ahead and live like my version of Christianity is true. But thanks for your input, Jesus. We find ourselves in serious trouble. It doesn't matter if you never made it past the sixth grade or if you are a Nobel laureate philosopher. We are working with absurdly limited resources to try to explain infinite reality. But here is what makes Colossians chapter 2 so extraordinary. The Father is granting us full access to that infinite wisdom in Jesus. That's amazing. In Jesus, Paul gives the epic Sunday school answer of all Sunday school answers, right? What's the answer to all of life's questions, the meaning behind the universe, our purpose in existence, and the path to greatest fulfillment in this life and beyond? Jesus. Right? And every Sunday school and I want a kid with a resounding, <laughs> I know this one. Jesus. Why? How? Because he is literally God. It is not one man's opinion versus another. It is God's versus mine. Everything is found in him. And so we determine what we believe in relation to faith and culture and politics and personal relationships based on what Jesus modeled and commanded us, not on what makes sense to us, what other people around us agree with, or what bloggers tell us. 
We define obedience based on what Jesus actually said and actually did, not based on religious practices that I prefer and that happen to affirm my opinions and my preferences. Because the way of Jesus will constantly push against our preferences and what is natural and comfortable for us. Because what is natural and comfortable for me is me being God. That is what gravity is pulling me towards. Me. Which is why Paul warns, take every thought captive in order to obey Christ. Because he knows that every thought is prone to self-focus rather than Christ-focused. So every thought needs to be recalibrated before we let that get too far. So how on earth do I get that kind of wisdom and knowledge? How do I pursue that? If it's not just studying more, if it's not just gaining more information, how do we get this? It's not less than reading the Bible, certainly, but it is so much more than just reading the Bible because it doesn't say all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in the Bible. It says all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ. Who scripture points us to, of course. But it is more than that. It must be pursued and experienced. It can't be gained by mere study. It is gained through obedience to our Jesus. Being rooted means I am in the dirt got to get my hands dirty. You could study a map of Palatine, Illinois. Even memorize the map. Learn what all the street names are, how to get to places. You could say based on the map where William Fremd High School happens to be. But you can't tell me based on all your knowledge of that map. Which are the best houses to cut through because there's gaps in the hedge? Or which are the houses you should not cut through because they kind of of have a little valley in there and they get super muddy or the owners of said houses are not fans of shortcutting kids? That map won't tell you what it sounds like sitting underneath the willow tree at the edge of the park. And it won't tell you what it smells like in the enclosed stairs to get to the top of the old school metal slide that's shaped like a rocket. Spoiler alert, bad. It smells bad. (laughs) It doesn't tell you which path to walk to William Fremd High School in the morning because of the areas that get super icy and are treacherous. No, those are, the, those are the things that you only know from living in the place. You learn those things by covering every inch of that area on foot or by pedal. And you learn in a way that no map will ever teach you. No amount of study will ever help you understand. In fact, sometimes the map will lead you astray because you don't realize what's actually happening in that place. That kind of knowledge is so much more real, more visceral, more practical. And even though I couldn't tell you what the street name was, that doesn't matter because I know that you turn just after the house with the fence before you hit the park. Then you turn right. That's real knowledge. 
right? the kind that leads to wisdom because it's not knowledge collected, but knowledge experienced. C.S. Lewis once brilliantly wrote about the difference between looking at something and looking through something. Not just studying something from afar, but actually looking through that thing, through experience. Jesus tells us, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Make myself known to him. That is how we know Jesus, by actually doing the things that he has said. And living the way that he lived, it is in following closely his words and his deeds that we gain this knowledge and wisdom that Paul is talking about here. Loving God and loving others the way that Jesus says to and showed us how to. Rather than studying Christianity like you're reading a map, following closely at Jesus' heels or the way the students used to say it, to to follow so closely that you would be covered in the dust of your rabbi. And you will learn the sounds and the smells and the feel and the taste of that divine wisdom. The Bible doesn't say learn and see that the Lord is good. It says taste and see that the Lord is good. It uses the sense that requires all four of the other senses for it to meet its full potential. That's no accident You will learn things about Jesus when you have kind, gracious, patient conversations with someone who isn't a Christian but you want to be, that you will never get from any book. It is in giving more than you think is reasonable or rational that you will learn of the extraordinary provision of Jesus. It is in getting into the habit of giving mercy to people who absolutely don't deserve it, just like you and I don't, that you will begin to understand the extravagant mercy of Jesus. It is in learning to look through Jesus rather than just at him that will transform your heart towards others, your circumstances, and the world. It is found in actually, literally obeying Jesus, not our man-made 21st century American interpretation of what we think he might have been hinting at, but what he said and what he did. Walking in Jesus, rooted in him, built up in him, following Jesus in everything, living like Jesus, thinking like Jesus, loving like Jesus, because In Jesus and Jesus alone are found all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And the key to unlock all that is love. First and foremost, God's love for us is most beautifully and astoundingly demonstrated by Jesus at the cross. But our love for one another and the lost world around us that he has placed us in. And in doing so, we just might become the inexplicably unified, impossibly loving, Christ-dependent church that Paul is struggling to see. And that Jesus came and died and resurrected in order to create.
And we might just see not just our country, but the world transformed because of it. Jesus, please make this true. Please, please reveal to us where we have been believing things that sound so reasonable but are based on human tradition and not on you. And help us to see where we believe our intellect and our knowledge trumps your love. It supersedes your commands that we believe that we have a better way. Help us to trust that you clearly know more than we do. That your way is immeasurably, infinitely better than ours. That we would trust it, that we would walk in it, and that you would allow us the joy and the privilege of being able to see the impossible things that you do in and through that. Jesus, we love you and we need you every day. It's in your name that we pray and in your name alone that we trust.